नमस्ते जय हिंद वेलकम टू अनादर एडिशन ऑफ ए एन आई पॉडकास्ट विद स्मिता प्रकाश दिस स्पेशल एडिशन इज बींग रिकॉर्डेड एट द रायसीना डायलॉग्स हेल्ड इन न्यू डेली इन ट्वेंटी ट्वेंटी थ्री आई रिकॉर्डेड टू The one here is in Raisina dialogue with former diplomat Arun Singh, India's ambassador to the United States from 2015 to 2016, and Ambassador Kenneth Juster, who needs no introduction to Indians. He's been US ambassador to India from 2017 to 2020 and has served on the National Security Council and National Economic Council. After this interview, we'll run a second recording which I recorded in January 2023. with Dhruva Jayashankar and C Rajamohan who have also closely observed the complexities of the India US relationship but first with ambassador Singh and ambassador Jaster Thank you gentlemen for agreeing to do this podcast. Uh I'd like to begin with you Ambassador Singh. Just this week, uh the American top do- diplomat for the region, uh Donald Lu, uh he expressed the view that US was aware that India wasn't going to end relations with Russia. Uh I'm quoting him. He said, "I don't think they're going to end those relations anytime soon, but we're talking to them about the role they can play in this conflict." To what do you attribute this uh non-application of pressure on India with regard to Russia? I think two things have happened recently which capture where the relationship is today. On 31st January this year, the Indian and US national security advisers launched a new initiative on critical and emerging technologies, artificial intelligence, quantum, cyber, 6G, biotech, commercialization of space. The fact that the two countries have decided to partner in this kind of technology is a reflection of the trust and confidence that they have in the relationship. So that's one dimension. and the second dimension is what you referred to as uh, donald lu's comments about we have now learned to manage our differences mm-hmm. which is a new stage in the relationship earlier when we had differences it did brought about some disruption now us has understood that there are compulsions in india related to the relationship with russia it's a legacy relationship even now we have 60% of our defense inventory is of russian origin so they understand that the, when india wants to maintain the strategic autonomy of its decision making it cannot give up on relationships that are in its national interest so the way they've decided to play it is show understanding for india's concerns and interests and the us national security advisor has said for example that with india now we are playing the long game and uh, the secretary of state tony blinken that we understand india's compulsions on russia so i think given the depth of the india us relationship they have assessed that there is no point for them in trying to put any pressure on india r- related to its relationship with russia because that's an area where india cannot compromise right. especially when india says that it takes decisions in its own interests right ambassador justa would you like to uh, take on from that uh, where you've been uh, ambassador here in uh, in new delhi you've been an india watcher a friend of india when do you think this maturity in relationship came about what was that watershed moment or is it a it's a you know a process i think it's been a process over the last 22 years uh it began uh really with the president clinton's trip to india at the end of his term in 2000 but i believe president bush really had the concept of transforming the relationship uh overall and that the world's largest and the world's oldest democracy should have a better relationship and it's steadily uh, changed there have been uh 
key points along the way. We first began with a high technology cooperation group. That then led to a next step in strategic partnership. That laid the foundation for the civil nuclear deal, which really was transformational. And again, the relationship sometimes, as uh, my colleague said, has had difficulties or challenges on a day-to-day -day basis. But when you step back and look at the arc of the last 22 years, it's extraordinary how much we have accomplished. But we'll continue to face challenges uh, going forward. And just to comment on the situation with Russia, the United States understands the history and the complexity of India's relationship with Russia and the fact that it has a lot of its military hardware from it. And we very much want to move forward uh, further in terms of our high technology relationship. But I think it would be uh, wrong to assume that at some point the two may clash because today in the military world, it's not just a question of equipment, it's a question of systems and networks. And yeah. military items talk to each other through their software. And there will be technological limitations in my view and from my understanding uh, from people in the defense community in terms of what the United States can share with India if it also has sophisticated Russian technology in its system or network as well. This is a question for India. The United States wants to go as far in the relationship as we can, but there may be some inherent limitations depending on India's own choices in terms of how it wants to array its various military items. Because you know, at some point, we cannot have the most sensitive U.S. technology uh, together with the sensitive Russian technology for fear, at least at this point, that it would be compromised. Whether there are technological fixes to that or whether there will have to be policy adjustments, that remains to be seen down the road. I'll stay on the topic of Russia. You, uh, you heard the foreign minister, uh, Russian foreign minister at the Raisina Dialogue. He said that Western nations are blackmailing countries uh, in, in the Asian region and pressurizing countries, dividing them even. Um, and old relationships are unable to withstand the kind of pressure that, uh, that America is putting uh, them through. Do you agree with that? Uh, no, Do you I, I listened to the Russian foreign minister and I was waiting to hear something cogent and compelling and I thought it was somewhat uh, disappointing and even the audience laughed at times at some of the way he pieced together uh, his history. Just as we said, the United States isn't pressuring India or other countries. Uh, that is for their choice as to what to do vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis, uh, the war in Ukraine. Uh, we think that it is a uh, uh, real violation of international law and a series of atrocities in terms of what has uh, occurred. Um, we'd like to see uh, Russians stop their behavior, and we'd like other countries to join us with that, but those, every country has chosen its own path, and we accept that. And we're not twisting anyone's arm or forcing them. That's an interpretation that the Russian foreign minister has given, but I don't think it's in accord with reality. Uh, Ambassador Singh, in, uh, in this post-COVID world that we are in, uh, international relations are sharply divided over the Russia-Ukraine conflict and over you know, the conflict in, say, the South China Sea. Um, we saw that there was really no meeting of minds at the G20. What about the Quad, G20 and Quad? What, are your, uh, what is your view on these two? So if you looked at uh, the comments that the Indian External Affairs Minister made uh, after the meeting of the G20, 
uh, his uh, suggestion was that there was a broad meeting of mind and there was an outcome document. It was essentially on two paragraphs related to Russia and Ukraine, uh, where, as he said, uh, two of the delegations couldn't agree with the broader formulation that was there, picking up uh, the Bali Declaration at the end of the year. So certainly related to what's happening in Russia, uh, related to some of the unilateral actions that China has taken in South China Sea, East China Sea, uh, along the line of control with India, uh, there are challenges that countries are facing. And uh, India's effort, I think, through the G20 process this year would be to try and focus on areas where there is convergence, try and focus also on the financial and economic issues, issues that are concerned uh, to the developing countries. India had convened a meeting of countries of the South and is talking about the voice of the South because those are some of the concerns that need to be addressed. Now, in that framework, I think uh, the Quad, uh, since its revitalization in 2017, has an important role to play in terms of, as it has projected, uh, maintaining a rules-based order, uh, maintaining freedom of uh, navigation, uh, sovereignty, territorial integrity of countries. And they're also working together to show to the countries in the region, in ASEAN, the Pacific Island countries, that through their work, the Quad is bringing something positive on the table to the benefit of the countries in the region. And again, you'd have seen comments from Indian leaders that they see the Quad as a force for global good. And that's how they're approaching it. Right. Ambassador Singh, like uh, we heard the four uh, saying that it's for goodwill and all. But China insists that this is being militarized. That Quad is a military tool. It's, it's a military grouping. What do you have to say to that? Look, China is trying to construct a narrative which it feels will serve its interest and try and undermine the growing sort of influence the Quad countries uh, bring to the table. And if you saw comments even made at this conference yes. by all the Quad uh, participants and leaders, it's anything but a military alliance. And they've said repeatedly that the security aspect, the military aspect is not there in the grouping, in terms of the various conversations that are having when they talk about issues related to climate change, new and emerging technologies, uh, infrastructure, connectivity, uh, digital technologies. So they are not discussing security. But I think China, as you've seen, is trying to bring about its unilateral influence in the countries in the region. And it feels that the countries of the Quad, if they're able to work together, will give to countries in ASEAN, in the Pacific Island, uh, options other than China. So from their perspective, they don't want to that. And so they want to construct a narrative to try and undermine uh, this effort. But, but that's their self-serving purpose, and uh, everybody else has to see it for what it is. If, um, if I could just sir, expand sure. on the excellent comments of uh, my colleague. Uh, I was very impressed yesterday at the uh, panel with the Quad ministers at how comfortable and easy they were. I was involved in the revitalization of the Quad, first at the working level in 2017, and then at the ministerial level in 2019, and then, as was stated, the... Uh, it's been raised uh, in 2021 to the leadership level, and the increasing comfort among the parties in discussing issues. They were called the Beatles, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and the expanding agenda. And uh, as Arun said, it's really meant to be an open architecture, inviting anyone else to participate mm. in positive common uh, goods for the region in a whole host of areas, 
as we said, in freedom of navigation, overflight, cybersecurity, vaccine distribution, resilient supply chains. And it's a false narrative that the Chinese are trying to create that it's a military alliance. Uh, that has been explicitly denied. Uh, but it is an alternative vision of the architecture for the region in which there's not predatory financing, there's not uh, trying to twist the arms of uh, other countries in terms of what to do, but to offer them opportunities for their benefit overall. So I was very impressed with the Quad. Regrettably, the G20 uh, has a, it is a consensus organization, so if you have uh, two states that uh, are uh, out of consensus, you can't get a document that has everyone on board, but they, uh, as was said, there were really two paragraphs only that were not uh, agreed upon, but uh, the, the contrast with the Quad was quite striking and, and how how uh, positive that was. Uh, if I could just add yeah, one sentence sure. here, that the Indian leaders have said repeatedly now that don't they don't see the Quad as against anyone, mm -hmm. but as a positive for something, and the rules-based order, freedom of navigation, and things exactly. like that. Right. Uh, Ambassador Singh, like Ambassador Juster, um, you have served, like he has served in mm. India, you've served in the U.S. several tenures. Um, in the last three to four years, one has noticed that the line between national security and trade, it's kind of got blurred. Um, and uh, India's external affairs minister also said that Global South cannot calibrate its foreign policy without looking at things like energy, fertilizer. So everything gets, uh, you know, these two things have merged now when it comes to, and being seasoned diplomats, I'd like both of you to give your point of view on this. So from my perspective, uh, what is happening now is a turn away from the attempt that was made since 1990. After the dissolution of the Soviet Union, uh, in the unipolar phase in global relations, there was an effort at globalization of trade and production and therefore uh, go for efficiency in production, involve all countries in the world. And that was the effort. As part of the effort in the US, uh, the projection was that you must integrate China more and more into the international mainstream, because that would lead to political and economic liberalization in China. Mm. Uh, but as a result of that, over time, they found that China has become uh, more protectionist. China is exploiting the rules of the WTO to subsidize its industry, has predatory trade and economic policies. And then COVID further exacerbated uh, that impact when there was a disruption in supply chain. So with the impact of these two phenomenon, I think there has been a sense, that, and you hear that more from the US, which was the original articulator of globalization, that first that you needed to do onshoring of production. Now they've moved away from that. They are talking of French shoring of production. And therefore, with that, uh, security becomes an important element in the supply chains that are being constructed. And again, from India's perspective, uh, with China, we have a very difficult relationship and we have a huge trade deficit with China. Uh, so looking at our own security, uh, French shoring of production and supply chains uh, will probably become a positive element in terms of how India looks at trade and economic relations. Right. Could I get to you? Sure. There have been a number of developments that have occurred over the last few years that have affected the economic agenda. First, countries have realized that trade has had positive and negative elements to it, and there have been some displacements of local working forces without properly integrating them back into the economy. And so, People want to be a little more careful about trade and how open and liberal it is. Uh, secondly, with COVID-19, there was 
a realization that some of our critical dependencies are on countries that we can't necessarily trust. And so while it's important to have supply chains, they need to be with trusted partners and be uh, resilient and strong. Uh, and then third, uh, some of the points that uh, Arun was just making in terms of uh, China have led folks to feel that we need to decouple, at least in sensitive areas, uh, from China. I think we have to make sure, though, that we don't overcorrect the other way and look totally at uh, self-sufficiency or uh, really narrowing some of the trade issues, because trade is important not just for its economic element, but as a strategic matter. And so I'm sensitive to the fact that we have to be sensitive to uh, local populations and displacement, but we also have to see that China has a robust regional trade strategy. It's joined the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement, is applied to join the a comprehensive and progressive agreement on Trans-Pacific Partnership. It has the Belt and Road Initiative. It has robust bilateral relations. And that, for them, is the major arena of influence in the region. And the United States and India are not in the regional agreements. We don't even ourselves, despite the fact that our trade levels keep increasing, have a trade agreement uh, uh, between us. And we have to, in my opinion, think more uh, uh, carefully about the broader trade relationship and our regional strategy for strategic reasons as much as anything so that we are not left out of shaping the rules and the norms for issues such as the digital economy and other important matters going forward. Right. Uh, just uh, in conclusion, um, Ambassador Singh, do you think that, uh, you know, this, the Raisina dialogue and hosting and the Quad and G to, uh, the G20 foreign ministers, do you think that this was a grand test for Indian foreign policy to host the Russians, the Americans and the Chinese on one platform? No, I don't think it's a grand test as such. I think it's a good confluence of various events that are taking place. And it's uh, good to have them. Uh, together at the same place where they can have some inter interactions. Of course, the U.S. Secretary of State, uh, as you know, met the Chinese foreign minister in Munich and had an inter interaction with the Russian foreign minister in India. So those are useful. But they would certainly have come to attend the G20 meeting, uh, as they did at Bali. And the Chinese and Russian foreign ministers will come back here, uh, despite our difficulties with China. We'll come back here for the Shanghai cooperation-related meetings that will happen later in the year. So I would say that these are useful opportunities to build on. Right. So would you like to add to that? I would just add that it is a uh, uh, fortuitous confluence of events that does help showcase India's own role in international affairs and the capabilities of the Prime Minister and the Minister of External Affairs in working with a variety of partners and pulling all of these events off very successfully this week and what I think everyone agrees has been a, a positive series of uh, meetings. Thank you, Ambassador Jaster. Thank you, Ambassador Singh. Thank you for speaking with us on Indo-US relations. Thank you. Thank you. The second session of this podcast on India-US relations is with Dhruva Jayashankar and C. Rajamohan. This episode was shot in January 2023. Today, my guests will unravel the knotty issues plaguing the India-US relationship. Both are foreign policy experts. Dhruva Jayashankar is Executive Director of the Observer Research Foundation, America. His earliest stints include being a fellow at the Brookings Institute in India and Washington, D.C. and the German Marshall Fund in Washington, D.C. With several stints in universities in Singapore and the U.S., Dhruva has written extensively on Indian foreign policy with special emphasis on Indo-U.S. relations. 
C. Rajamohan is a senior fellow with the Asia Society Policy Institute in New Delhi. Earlier, he was the director of Institute of South Asian Studies, National University of Singapore, and currently a visiting research professor there. Rajamohan was also the founding director of Carnegie India and has served on the National Security Advisory Board. Thank you, gentlemen, for coming to ANI podcast with Smita Prakash. It's always good to have friends on the podcast where I can chat uh, without having egos hurt and without <laughs> worrying about sensitivities. Uh, Dhruva Raja, Thank you, I've uh, had you over. Uh, I've met you. I've worked with you several times. And Raja is the one, you know, Dhruva, uh, who when we we went to cover the one to three nuclear deal. Mm-hmm. And for the life of me, I couldn't understand whether it's going to happen or not happen. Mm. We were waiting in the room and I said, this isn't working. Mm. I don't think it's working. I'm going to go with the story because my deadline was coming. And Raja was like, wait, (laughs) (laughs) India, US, you never know. It just might. And thank God I didn't file my story or thank Raja I didn't file (laughs) my story. So... I'm going to begin with you in the pecking order simply because Raja's uh, seen mm. India-US relations. Mm. Uh, you know, he has the benefit of having mm. seen it over a longer period of time. Uh, early mover advantage. I'm going to ask you, uh, you've had decades of experience on seeing India-US relations, uh, reporting on it uh, as a reporter and then uh, analyzing it too. At what point do you see uh, the relationship now with India hosting the G20 and uh, the future ahead? I think some of your younger listeners might not know how difficult the relationship was just Mm. 30 years ago. Correct. And today it's really, US is our most uh, comprehensive partner. It's the largest uh, trading partner. It gives us military equipment. Uh, We have nearly... 5 million Indians uh, in the United States. Uh, so it's it's a very different relationship today. But mm. when we were covering, say, 30 years ago, yeah, uh, it was, there would be intense recrimination at the drop of a hat. Suspicion. Too. Suspicion, distrust. Yeah. So I think you had the dif- differences over Kashmir, differences over Pakistan, differences over the nuclear issue. So it was a very testy, touchy relationship. Uh, if you go back to the 1990s. So I think with the nuclear tests in 1998... Uh, and then the civil nuclear deal in 2005 and the Bush administration's decision to what we call dehyphenate, separate mm-hmm. India and Pakistan and step back from Kashmir activism. Together, I think this series of developments between 1998 to 2005 uh, laid the basis for a very, very different relationship. And I think since then, uh, despite all the pessimism about the relationship, it has grown uh, from strength to strength. As I said today, the trade is about one sixty billion dollars, and it's really uh, and the and the links say between Bangalore and Silicon Valley, uh, or the businesses between Bombay and New York. I mean, it, it's really an amazing uh, partnership today. Hmm. Uh, Dhruva, you know, uh, we were talking about the the past and the present. To see it from that prism, uh, do you also see the the probably the nuclear deal uh, as that that watershed moment of before and after? I think there were a few different watershed moments in hindsight. Um, you know, uh, I think the nuclear tests were actually a big... Uh, a, 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 it drew American attention to India in a way that it hadn't in a sustained manner previously. Mm-hmm. And you had the Jaswan Singh Strobe Talbot uh, uh, dialogue that uh, Rajmohan, amongst others, covered very intensely and, and uh, reported. And, you know, again, it was... Uh, in some ways, 1998 was the low point, but it also led to a realization on both sides about how to repair the relationship. 
um, again, 2005 was a was a major. 2005 to eight was was a major moment as well. For the first time in in the U.S., was signaling to India that it wanted to not just make amends but actually actively move India into uh, a category. You know, otherwise India was being treated like a North Korea in some ways on the nuclear issue. Uh, to suddenly from a pariah to to a partner. And so that period, I think, was very intense. And we had a very intense debate. I think, again, I find sometimes, I, I remember it still because I was early in my career at that time, but I find young people younger than me sometimes don't remember how intense it was. We had a very strong debate in India uh, in those years about what is the future of the relationship with the U.S.? What, is, what does it mean for India's place in the world? Can we India rise without a partnership with the U.S.? So, um, so I think that, that that was a formative period in some ways. But I think we're now at a very different plateau, you know, different stage completely. Um, again, uh, it's not that there aren't differences. We have differences over Russia, over on trade issues, uh, sometimes on digital issues, immigration, sometimes Pakistan uh, rears its head still. But, you know, on all of those issues, I think they're much better managed today. The number, the, the level of contact and dialogue between the two governments, between the two peoples, the integration between the two economies is just at a qualitatively different level. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I'm based in Washington now, but every few weeks there's a senior official from India coming in. You know, we just had the, the commerce minister there. We'll have national security advisors soon. You, and, and two ways, the, the, the secretaries, cabinet secretaries coming here, uh, to India. So I think it's, it's a qualitatively very different relationship. Dhruva, I think uh, the visits used to be there every time. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. there were so many people going from India. But the level of, uh, you know, that they would meet, mm-hmm. that seems to have changed, isn't it? That the officials they would meet in the establishment in the US. I think that's changed. I mean, again, I, I don't know all the meetings, you know, prior to the 90s. Uh, you know, they, they, now a lot of it is available in the archives. You can see what was discussed in some of those meetings. Some of it, I think, is, is certainly the seniority. Uh, you, and again, we take it for granted, but you know, I, I hear sometimes in Washington complaints from other countries, uh, officials from other countries saying, oh, we don't get FaceTime with uh, senior officials in the U.S. government. How come India gets so much FaceTime? So, so again, I think we now take it for granted that that, uh, that is the case. But uh, that does seem to be uh, true. You know, most Indian officials meet with their counterparts their, in terms of protocol. Uh, sometimes higher than that, uh, you know. The, I think uh, just uh, la- late last year, the foreign secretary came, and you know, the secretary of state in the U.S., who's, who's a cabinet uh, level person, gave him some time, brief time to meet. Uh, again, for many other countries, they noted this. Uh, mm. they, they see this uh, how much importance India is being given. Yeah, uh, Raja from uh, Dhruva mentions from pariah to partner. Uh, it it hasn't been an easy journey, right? And it hasn't been a journey without hurdles without speed breakers, what were those hurdles and when did we cross those or did we cross those smoothly? You remember the the great uh, debate on the nuclear deal. Mm. Uh, you had uh, Prime Minister Manmohan Singh, you know, I had to constantly go back to, you know, George W. Bush and say, look, I've got serious opposition, so don't insist on certain conditionalities, so you must be more sensitive to my requirements. So where George W. Bush kept making the necessary uh, amendments so that Mr. Manmohan Singh can successfully steer it through the parliament. But yet, in the finally, he had to face up mm. uh, a leading coalition of partner. The left parties ended their support. Yeah. Mr. Manmohan Singh had to go into the parliament to seek a confidence vote. You remember all the drama in the Almost in the lost Lok his government? Yeah, yeah. But he was willing to stake it even then. Yeah. I keep repeating this to many mm. people who don't remember that for a, on a foreign policy issue, a prime minister was ready to stake his government. 
Because in India, as you know, look, the foreign policy is not subject to parliamentary approval, mm. unlike in the US, where every agreement, all major agreements, have to be ratified by the Senate. In India, the executive has the power to do things. But I think it was the nature of the political controversy mm. that India was beginning to engage the US seriously. You remember all the arguments uh, at that time. Oh, India will lose its independence. India will India's independent foreign policy will be sacrificed. And that separation of the civil and military nuclear programs will be a disaster. Uh, so I think the the intensity of the argument was completely disproportional to a deal which is fairly straightforward, uh, and that it was in to the benefit of India. But yet the political opposition to it. You remember how the BJP under Mr. Adwani and the CPIM under Prakash Karat both were opposing the deal. Yeah, and I think uh, in the end, I think it was really people like uh, you know. Uh, Mr. Kalam was a president, former president at the time. You had uh, people like Mulayam Singh, yeah, the whole lot of other people mm. rallied around to bail out the government. Mm. So I think it was a very, very critical moment. If Mr. Manmohan Singh had lost the confidence vote, I think things could have taken another turn. The other part is, once the agreement was done, we haven't bought a single American reactor since then. Yes, that's that's <laughs> another thing. So I think what it yeah. changed was the trust. It was never about the reactors. It was never about the nuclear deal. If Russia had given us a similar deal, I mean, they didn't have the power to give it to us, uh, there would have been no debate. Hmm. I think it was the long accumulated political distrust of the United States that led to the controversy. And after that, you never hear about what went in there. I think today there is a level of comfort. Hmm. I think the challenge of the nuclear deal was not to produce a nuclear reactors in India, hmm. but to overcome the trust deficit. And the second aspect to it was uh, the fear that the Americans and the British would intervene and take Kashmir away from us. Once Bush removed that, so I think two major sources of suspicion were removed. And after that, it's been really one advance after another. While we have differences today, but the differences are really marginal compared to the expanse of the cooperation that we have. In the past, there was only differences. Uh, there was very little cooperation. I'll just give you one example. In 1990. India's total two-way trade uh, with Russia was higher than with the United States. Hmm. Uh, Russia was about, Soviet Union was about $5.6 billion and US was about $5 billion. So last year, uh, India-Russia trade was barely $10 billion. In 22, it's grown because of the oil purchases. But the US trade is $160 billion. So, so where we have come in those 30 years hmm. from really $5 billion to $160 billion, and it's growing. And we have a, 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 what do you call, a surplus on our side. So I think it's a very different relationship. And this way, the, the diaspora was another critical element who's campaigned for the support of the nuclear deal in the U.S. And since then, they've become a, a really a living bridge. Uh, between India and the US. And in, on the nuclear issue, I remember even at that time, the Americans, you know, used to say that, yeah, we, we are signing this deal with you guys, but when it actually comes to commerce, it's the French who will probably mm -hmm. get in. And we, because of our bureaucracy, which is the yeah. Americans, and because of various knots in this uh, whole thing, uh, we will not be doing commerce for a long, long time. And sure enough, yeah. You know, how many years has it been since it's then? It's almost uh, 20, 2014 years, 14 years since yeah. 2008. Yeah. And we still don't have an American <laughs> reactor. They've still not been able to do the kind of level of commerce yeah. that they had envisaged. Mm -hmm. uh, where is it stuck? What is the problem? No, I think it's really, I mean, uh, one part was the liability. I think where the Manmohan Singh had a great triumph yeah. in doing the nuclear deal. But I think they squandered much of it 
by doing a liability bill mm. which made it very hard for western companies uh, to set up reactors in india so except the soviet union except russia we haven't bought reactors from anyone but but i think it's really the liability we made it really difficult for outsiders uh, so i think that's a tragedy but i think as george bush used to say look this is not about reactors mm. that while you are not bought any reactors the nature of the commerce between the two sides has dramatically grown and i think that's where uh, that the absence of mistrust uh, with or without reactors yeah both condi rice and yeah. uh, george bush yeah. Yeah. Uh, they both used to say yeah. that yeah. yes that's true uh, dhruva mm. since you're in dc you you see the relationship through two prisms mm. i guess mm. uh, tell me what is the uh, what is the view in washington dc do they think that this relationship had more potential than it's actually delivered so i'll say actually one thing on the nuclear the civil nuclear commerce um i think a few things happened one was the nuclear liability bill um and it was in some ways a squandered opportunity but a few th- other things happened one was the fukushima disaster yes and that sort of changed globally not just in india but that changed the sort of uh, you know set back in some ways the move uh, which today actually makes sense from an energy security point of view from a climate change point of view uh the civil nuclear energy industry the third thing that happened actually was the us uh, nuclear industry went bankrupt essentially westinghouse their largest producer and so just when india was you know india was starting to make moves towards uh, moving ahead on this they they weren't able to deliver on their side um so i think it, was, it there, there are multiple reasons why that didn't materialize i would also say you know uh, 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 dr rajamon mentioned the commercial relationship in the diaspora but there's another turning point we haven't touched upon uh which i think was the y2k uh and by by extension in some ways the growth of the indian it industry the um you know the establishment of uh, uh sort of a tech uh, ecosystem and that in some ways led directly to the establishment of a large diaspora in in yeah, a very successful indian american diaspora a lot of the trade is in services between the two countries and so i mean there's not one single turning point but if you had to pick one perhaps the y2k was that moment and we were still in some ways seeing the benefits of that but is you know are people disappointed by you know again maybe people who work in the civil nuclear industry are and again the reasons are not just on the indian side uh there are many reasons why that hasn't materialized uh i would say look broadly i think people are actually quite uh, satisfied with the progress that has been made mm. um you look at defense for example there was you know 2005 6 there was no defense trade between us and you know substantial with the ge engines for the for the tejas but but not very much uh, today india india operates eight platforms that are us uh, origin uh, military platforms and some of them quite significant ones um so that has completely transformed uh, you actually now have joint production in india in places like hyderabad and bangalore of you know make in india products by us companies and indian uh, working with the indian uh, companies that's just on the security side um but i think if you look across the board today energy you know prior to the war uh, the russia ukraine war the us was the second largest supplier of natural gas to india after qatar it was the fourth largest supplier of oil to india and again this was something that 5 6 years ago was a, a trickle today it's a major part of the relationship um renewable energies as well so uh, i think you know you go down on almost every area today the relationship is in a much more robust place Uh, how do people in washington see it i think people who track the relationship broadly understand this uh people at the senior levels of government largely see this they see it as a positive relationship they've devoted a lot of time i think some people who are it's more the chatterati i think some people who are casual observers some of the foreign policy generalists really haven't paid as much attention to the relationship as they should there isn't the depth of understanding about india it's still i, I think given how 
how large India is. There's still a uh, unfortunate uh, lack of understanding, I think, about uh, India, many aspects of India. So that, I think, a lot more work needs to be done there. Is that specific just to India-US relations? I mean, the way India functions... Yeah, uh, is it hard to understand? Uh, is befuddling <laughs> to most uh, observers outside and you know practitioners of foreign policy. I think two things about the Americans. You know, they're very practical people. Mm. I mean, as long as the overall relationship is moving forward, mm. the lack of progress on the nuclear issue does not really matter. Mm. That things are improving across the board. There's most defense cooperation today. We have something called the Quad. Uh, which was unimaginable, say, a decade ago, that it is working. So as long as the overall, the ball is being pushed forward, okay, minor disagreements or failures does do not uh, mm. really really matter. Mm. Second, I think the the Americans will keep coming coming at you. You know, unlike you know in other parts of the world, I mean, where they might say, look, we are we are very difficult to deal with. I mean, Indians are not easy to deal with, and I think a lot of times. Uh, declaratory policies don't get translated at the at the bureaucratic level. But the Americans just keep coming at it and keep trying different ways to uh, move forward, rather than saying, "Look, I'm cutie with you, and I'm not going to do anymore." So, so I think there is a there is an innate pragmatism uh, within the U.S. So, and not just with us, like they have huge differences with Europe. Hmm. But today, in the Ukraine case, they've come together. They've they've had huge trade problems with Japan, but yet that relationship has endured for seventy years. So, I think they are willing to, uh, you know, manage differences as long as you expand the areas of cooperation. Uh, they're quite, they're quite happy mm. with it. You know, when we talk about areas of convergence, there can be many. Like you mentioned, uh, Dhruva mentioned defense. You mean there's uh, tech. There's dif- uh, pharma. There's so many things that we can talk about. But when it comes to uh, Indo-Pacific. Um, there is also this suspicion about uh, America playing some kind of a pivotal role in this region. At least our immediate neighbors are uh, are a little antsy that you know through India, America could be playing uh, and you know a, a pivot when it comes to also with uh, you know India and China kind of a thing. Don't you think that? No, I, I think with America, there's always a conspiracy theory. I, mean, mm-hmm. I think, uh, but as Dhruva might uh, say that, look, if you see the the kind of way in which the American, the chaos with which the policy is made, I mean, it's very hard to devise conspiracies in Washington. Mm-hmm. So I think what they did in the Indo-Pacific, it's not uh, actually, uh, I remember the debate uh, in 2008 onwards, with a lot of suspicion in India, why are they calling it Indo-Pacific? Why do they want to bring India into it? Yeah. But I think we've overcome those fears. I mean, it's actually, the Indo-Pacific is about putting Indo into the Pacific. Hmm. So what we saw, you know, uh, thanks to the kind of policies independent India pursued, uh, India was already a power. If you go back to 1945, in the Second World War, uh, Indian troops, uh, India's contribution to the war was uh, immense. Uh, Indian troops were there almost all the way up to Vietnam, taking surrender of the Japanese troops. Indian troops were major, you know, they really pushed the Japanese out of Burma. But I think after independence, we kind of turned inwards. Hmm. So in a way, from being a leader of Asia, we saw ourselves as shrunk to South Asia. Yeah, I think what Indo-Pacific has done is really to put India back into the larger picture. You know, Raja, you and I have covered ASEAN summit mm, yeah. several times and uh, several Asian readers would say that why doesn't India take leadership? You know, why doesn't it play a larger role? Mm. And we used to always wonder, oh, we have no answer to this. Mm, yeah. Like, why doesn't it do it? I, I'm not 
so concerned about what Indians feel and that yeah. India wanting to. I guess many of us are flattered that uh, you know it's become Indo-Pacific. Mm. But you were in Singapore too. Yeah. So tell me, how does yeah. how do the other Asian countries see this new name? No, yeah, absolutely, I think there are two things there. One, our own neighbors in South Asia, and they, they think until all these decades they've used the Americans to balance against India. Mm. Correct. They had problems with India, therefore US and China and was seen as partners in limiting India's power. So when India and the US get together, so for them, it is a problem. Mm. Uh, so they're a bit worried that their viewpoint, uh, say whether it is Nepal or whether it is Sri Lanka, won't carry as much weight. Mm. US and India will jointly dominate the region, so that's one fear. For the ASEAN, uh, I think Southeast Asia, there are really deep sense of ambivalence about the Indo-Pacific, they don't like the term. They would prefer to use Asia-Pacific rather than Indo-Pacific. And for them, uh, Quad, they're very concerned about it. They think the Quad will replace the ASEAN. So for them, they got so integrated into the Chinese sphere of influence. For them, a quarrel between US and China and a deepening partnership between India and the US uh, to balance China uh, make them very, very uncomfortable. But I think my my assessment is that, look, the more India does, uh, more India works with the U.S., and more the Quad becomes a functioning organization. Uh, people learn to live with it. Hmm. Uh, so I think it is a question, if they see the Quad and the U.S. faltering against China, then they're going to go even closer to China. But if they see the Quad, the U.S., Japan today are beginning to mount pressure on China, if they see the pressure as significant, they would begin to readjust their position. So finally, it is how they judge the power equations. And I think we're just at the beginning of that big transition where China is stumbling now. You remember two years ago, China is invincible, China is unstoppable, U.S. is in decline. But today we're seeing China has its own problems, U.S. has its own strengths. So I think the picture is beginning to change, but you are absolutely right. There's a lot of worries about about the Indo-Pacific, about the Quad. Why is India in this? So I remind a lot of my friends in ASEAN that, look, India was here uh, to liberate you from the Japanese. It was not the Chinese troops, it was the Indian troops. So, But I think that we ourselves have abandoned that history. Mm-hmm. And it's really Prime Minister Modi deserves uh, you know, uh, credit for reclaiming the role India played in the two world wars. And that we're not a new Johnny-come-lately mm-hmm. to become a major power. That we, we've always contributed to the maintenance of the international system and that is India's return of India to a major yeah. post. That's why I have that poster, Raja, you know, mm. behind you. Uh, that's a World War One recruitment poster. Mm. You know, the Indian soldier out there. Many people think it's an Akhand Bharat <laughs> thing. <laughs> it's not. It's the World War One uh, poster. But yeah, um, tell me, Dhruva, uh, is the, this ambivalence that, uh, you know, Asia has mm. or this, um, should I say, maybe not misplaced fear, mm. but this uh, confusion probably mm. where is Quad going where mm. is Indo-Pacific going are they going to be in sync with each other also is America ramming down uh, the Indo-Pacific and ramming down the Quad down the gullets of all the Asian countries so you know it's it's quite funny there's a lot of uh, mythologizing about a lot of this but if you take the chronology uh, it actually paints a very different picture chronology <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, okay. yeah, yeah, it, it paints a very different picture so a few things you know one is uh, actually, the U.S. was a very belated uh, of the Quad countries, was perhaps the most belated in adopting the terminology and vision of the Indo-Pacific. 
Uh, actually, credit, I I would say, in hindsight, goes to a few people. One is Shinzo Abe and his government in Japan, who, who led a lot of this. He, uh, Prime Minister Abe gave a speech at the Indian parliament, actually, when he visited in 2007, where he spoke about a confluence of the two seas. Mm-hmm. Actually, he was quoting Darashiko, the, yeah, the, the Mughal prince. About, uh, huh? Raja, time to write a book on Shinzo Abe's uh, contribution <laughs> to to, uh, to India-Japan and to Absolute, what, yeah. what yeah. his his yeah. role yeah. in... You know, in formulating this, yes. So, sorry. No, no, no this is true. Diverting. Uh, so, 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 I think that 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 played a role. The the second actually was it it created there were intellectual undercurrents, and one of the people who deserves credit is actually sitting right here, Dr. Rajmohan. He wrote a book called Samudra Mantan, uh, which came out in twenty twelve, I think, and and which made the case for the Indo Pacific. It was it it, it so which is uh, you're going to see now more competition at sea. Uh, the churn of the seas that was evoked, and and there were other uh, you know scholars as well, Rory Metcalf in Australia, others who were sort of championing championing this idea. The Australian Foreign Ministry, actually uh, Defence Ministry and Foreign Ministry, adopted the terminology of the Indo-Pacific in their official documents. Uh, Prime Minister Manmohan Singh, when he went to Tokyo in 2013, actually discussed the Indo-Pacific in his speech uh, there. So the US was actually a very late adopter, even in 2015 when Pre- uh, President Obama came to the US. Uh, I'm sorry, came to India for the Republic Day. There was a joint strategic vision on the Asia Pacific and Indian Ocean region. They ref- you know they refused to say Indo Pacific, yes. uh, which tells you how how late they were still worried about what that would connote and what the implications of that were. So this idea, you know, it's kind of funny now to see this as sort of the Indo Pacific is an American concept being rammed down the throat of uh, because once countries. America takes over, it takes over, it right? Takes it over. goes into the driving seat, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> even if they even you know, yeah. they might be sitting in the back seat and might be in the corner or maybe in that baby seat in the middle. <laughs> yes. But it, they become the driver of every relationship. Yes. So, 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 so it's just funny now to think back because they were actually a late adopter to the 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 concept. The other thing on the ambivalence, look, you know, the the strategic picture emerged in a certain way for many for many years, uh, starting in the sixties and seventies, but particularly after China's opening in the eighties and nineties, much of Asia became used to this perfect world where America guaranteed security, to put it crudely, and China guaranteed their future economic growth. So they had trade agreements with China. They had uh, supply chain connections to China. China was the driver of their economic growth. Um, and this arrangement worked very nicely for many people for, in, in much of Asia. Uh, now they're finding that that is coming to an end. That U.S.-China comp- strategic competition means that they're having to make some very uncomfortable choices. And they're very reluctant to have, have, to, have to make those choices. So we're seeing this already in the digital sphere on 5G uh, technologies, for example, we're going to see this more and more and more in supply chains. Now, India is in a very interesting position because despite the growth of India-China trade, actually India is one of the major Asian economies that is not as dependent on China as many of the others. We, you know, we, what we import from China is mostly manufactured goods. What we export is raw materials. We're not as integrated into supply chains. Our economy is not that as dependent. Uh, at the same time, we have a uh, in India we have our own uh, strategic uh, concerns about China, including at the border, but not just at the border, but in the maritime domain, in our neighborhood, uh, on multilateral issues. And so, for India, it's much more in in a much more comfortable place to have to make some of these difficult decisions and you know work with the Quad countries, work in the Indo-Pacific context, um, uh, than than many of these other countries. And so, I think that what we're seeing, this ambivalence that we're seeing from many countries in Asia, actually reflects their deep discomfort and their uh, reluctance to take what will soon be very tough decisions on many of these issues. Because I think they benefited immensely from four decades of U.S.-China integration. Hmm. Uh, you know, Singapore, for example, 
recognize PRC, People's Republic, Republic of China, only in 92. Hmm. While India was, of course, we yeah. did it right in the beginning. Early mover. So I think a lot of them were deeply suspicious of communist China, particularly Mao's China. It's only when the U.S. normalized relations with China that the rest of Asia actually normalized relations with China. Mm-hmm. So from being utterly suspicious of China, and the Americans said it's kosher to do business with China. So though they were quite happy making money on both sides. As U.S.-China became on the same side against the Soviet Union, uh, rest of Asia simply took advantage of it. So for them now, to as U.S. and China begin to decouple themselves, uh, it poses what Dhruva said, look, really difficult you know, situation for them because it's nice now when US and China were on the same side because they're not on the same side. And I think they, they're beginning to come to terms with the reality. Because one thing about major powers, whether it's US or China, their discourse power is high. Hmm. Remember how the Chinese built up the Belt and Road as the greatest yeah. thing since sliced bread. So I think major powers control discourse. Hmm. And I think once the US moved in and they're basically saying nice things to ASEAN, we love ASEAN centrality, but keep doing what they're doing. So I think the smaller countries uh, will have to adapt in Southeast Asia because they have no choice. Very good point. This, uh, you know, like we were talking about being in the driver's seat. It's it's America which does the virtue signaling, signaling and the others uh, follow after that. So you need that good chit from America. Why is it on human rights they don't do that with regard to China and this intense scrutiny on India? When it comes to that, what happens now? Now that there is suspicion between US and China, their relationship has soured to a certain extent. How come the blinkers when it comes to human rights violations? Look, I think human rights in the US is like our non-alignment. You know? <laughs> it's, an, it's an ideology. You know? So there are always people saying, there is a section of the US strongly believe in it. But US is a power which has to constantly you know, adjust between competing arguments within your country. Democracy, the, yeah, noise of democracy. Yeah. So one, is business more important or democracy more important? Is strategic partnership more important or democracy more important? So US in operational terms has always been a realistic power. Like otherwise, how would dando, you... Exp- huh? So yeah, dando yeah, yeah, is yeah, more yeah, important, yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> otherwise, explain to me, how did they do business with China and Pakistan for 40 years? Mm. Uh, how did they, they... So look at the contradiction. On the one hand, they said... The, You're saying Pakistan, Raja. Watch out. Yeah, Once we start yeah. on that, we're not going no, to stop. No, no. Anyway, go on. So I think for them, it is the circumstances, the overall, uh, what you call, you know, take all the factors together, what prevails. See, look, distant, like India, for example, when it's Fiji, something happens to Indian population. We we are pure position, right, about the rights yeah. of minorities. We insist on doing things. But when it happens, something happens in Burma, we are far more quieter because Burma is our neighbor. We want to deal with them. So, so is the case with U.S. They can take a pure position on Myanmar or Burma where they don't have too much stakes to punish Burma for human rights violations. But with China, they say, no, yes, some sanctions here and there, but we need to keep up the trade, especially when you have a trillion dollars of trade. I mean, what do you, what do, you do? So I think it's what we say as a principle Mm. And what we do in practice are never the same. Mm. So so I think it is, they okay. see if there is no competing interest, human rights will prevail. Or sometimes okay. it's used as a leverage to put mm. pressure on someone. The, the, the contrast I often think of in the Indian context is our position on the Falkland Islands, on Diego Garcia. We had a and, position on Falkland yeah, Islands? Yeah, in India supported it's, the Malvina, they call it the Malvinas, no? which is the Argentinian mm. anti-colonial, name for it, anti-colonial. Uh, Diego Garcia and uh, New Caledonia. You know, we have very different, you know, in, in, 
you 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 pick and choose when it's convenient. I can to... see on YouTube people googling and seeing what yeah. was Indian position. <laughs> yeah, but but uh, oh. you know the, you have to balance va- you know values and interests. Mm. And sometimes sometimes you're most vocal on the values when you have zero interests. No, so yeah. uh, Falklands are far away. We can say what we want about it. Nobody cares. Uh, but uh, you know, similarly, I feel like you know sometimes what the U.S. has shown it has very little leverage. For example, on Myanmar, mm. so you know they, from their point of view, it's uh, you know all they have to think about is democracy there. Mm. Whereas for India, where we have a large land border, we have you know um, a mill-to-mill relationship. Uh, it's strategically important. Um, you know, you have you have uh, you know flow of people back and forth. That uh, we have uh, co-ethnic national groups. security. Ch- so you have to be much groups. more. Yeah. You have to be much more practical, and so you do have to balance. You know, it's a, it's a good. It's an interesting example of how you have to balance values and interests. And like India is doing with regard to the Ukraine-Russia war, uh, with regard to Iran, is it similar? Yeah, exactly. So look, uh, while if you know, you take the historically we have. Uh, always been mute when it came to Russian interventions. Hmm. Uh, we didn't speak up against Russian, you know, invasion of Hungary in 1956, Czechoslovakia in 1968, Afghanistan in 79. Russians are friends. Uh, they help us on Kashmir in the UN Security Council. So don't you don't criticize your friends even when they're doing bad things. Hmm. Uh, but you'll criticize the other party. Like we were denouncing Americans in Vietnam. We were saying, look how bad the American... Uh, uh, aggressions were, but we would keep quiet on Soviet Union. I think see, it was about real politic that you mm. kept. But today, I think uh, the Ukraine question again the same considerations. Look, Russia is a partner; uh, we depend on them for weapons. Therefore, we don't criticize uh, the Russian actions. But I think what we're seeing today is India is beginning to adapt because, mm. as I said, look, our trade with Russia is very little compared to our trade with Europe and the U.S. And second, that China's alliance with Russia will increasingly make it harder for us because Russia also helped us balance China. Mm. But if Russia and China are partners today against the West, then I think Russia's utility and strategic value for us over the longer term uh, will begin to decline. But in the near term, you still are dependent on them for weapons. And uh, we are trying to change that. Prime Minister Modi talks about uh, self-reliance and defense production. We're not importing too many new weapons from Russia. But we are trying to now produce more and more of the spare parts. So what happened first? Did Russia move towards China first? Or did Russia move towards China after India moved no, no, no. We were not towards the, the no. US closer? No, no, no. no. We are not the That pivot, when did that yeah. happen? Look, I think until in, in the 90s, both the Russians and the Chinese were loving the United States. If you remember Yeltsin era, uh, Russia, want, you know, Russia was trying to get cozy and cozying up to the West. And they neglected us in the 90s. Because they said they were going to be part of the West. India was a part of the past. So let's, you know, make hay with the West. And China was doing very well with the Americans. So they didn't have time for us. So it's really once Putin decided West is a problem and Xi Jinping decided West is a problem, that brought them together. And that had nothing to do with us. But it is a situation we have to adapt because both Russia and China feel West is their principal problem. Therefore, they need to pull their forces together to deal with the West. And we are really sideshow to that. So the challenge for us is how do I navigate this new situation? Where are my interests, near term and long term? Near term, we have dependencies on Russia. But if you look at the long term, our engagement with the US and Europe and Japan is going to grow bigger and bigger. So how do we navigate that is a problem. Hmm. So I don't think they were responding to us at all because they were playing the bigger game and we get affected by the process. 
Right. Dhruva, do you, uh, do you see that in, do you see the view in, uh, in uh, DC uh, that India is trying to do this adaptation? Do you think, or do you think that, uh, do they see us as doing some kind of a monkey balancing? Uh, I think it depends who you ask. <laughs> um, I think, again, uh, The Beltway now, bandits. <laughs> no, I think, you know, now at the senior level of government in the US, I think there is an understanding of India's position. That doesn't mean that they're happy about it, but I think they understand. And they understand the practical concerns. Um, you know, they understood that India had to evacuate when the war broke out in Ukraine. They had to evacuate 20,000, 22,000 uh, uh, Indian citizens, primarily students from, from there. They understand that their energy concerns, food security concerns, defense relations. Actually, um, the number three at the State Department, Victoria Newland, uh, who's somebody who's a Europe specialist. She was uh, served in Ukraine. So she was ambassador to NATO. She's known for being a, a Russia hawk. And when she came to, to Delhi last year, she was, instead of uh, berating India, she was saying, how can we practically help you with your spares? Can we talk to Eastern European countries about providing spare parts for into India? So it's a very practical, again, uh, approach. Uh, she, you know, somebody who who wouldn't normally, you think, would have harangued India on. Is that, I'm sorry to interrupt, but is that one view that we can't let India fail, hence give everything? No, they, I think they understood, they heard from India that we, you know, we have we have this dependence on Russia for spares and maintenance of existing inventory in um, military. And, and I think the approach was, okay, can we practically help you with some of that? So we are in a war with China, and I think that is the situation. Yeah, that was, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so again, at the senior levels, I think that 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 has been understood. Uh, actually, today there's even an appreciation of India's position on in some ways, which is, you know, India's helping to keep global energy prices low by buying Russian, uh, which is uh, if they, if they were not, it would actually be adding to inflationary pressures both in Europe and the U.S., uh, which is politically quite sensitive. They understand that, say, at the G20 summit, India played along with Indonesia and Brazil played a key role in ensuring there was a joint statement that mentioned the Ukraine war in mm. it. Uh, China particularly was very opposed to that at the time. Um, so I think that va the the value that India plays, I think, has been understood. It's not necessarily been understood, I think, by the broader strategic community. And you still sometimes see, um, uh, you know, criticism in the press and all of that. But I think that's largely from people who haven't bothered to try to understand India's position, who in some cases can't put themselves in India's shoes and say, you know, what is the situation that uh, presents itself? So I think they see it more as monkey balancing. There's sometimes a tendency to inflate the India-Russia relationship when you point out the trade figures outside of, say, defense, civil nuclear energy and, and space. Um, you know, so far it has been a very thin relationship with Russia. Uh, I point out that they sometimes there were more Indian students in Ukraine than there were in Russia when the war broke out. Uh, which is, a, I think, an unfortunate testament to uh, you know what had been a very storied tradition of Indian students going to uh, Russia. Um, so I think if you if you if you you know uh, present this picture, I think people are very understanding of it. Why is it that America still has blinkers on? How many more times do they have to be stabbed in the back by Pakistan to figure out uh, that what they are doing, what they are have been doing in Pakistan is wrong? How many more times will they get bitten by the snake? No, my reading is somewhat different. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't think they're as bothered about Pakistan as they were till they left Afghanistan in August 2021. It's really, we have a problem with Pakistan. Therefore, anything little that gets done with Pakistan, we tend to see that as, uh, as, a, as a major kind of U.S. commitment to Pakistan. I think we've seen two things happen in the last one year. One, they gave some maintenance grants for the, for the F-16, not new weapons, but maintaining the 40-year-old weapons stock that they have. Second, they've given them some aid for the flood relief. But beyond that, 
where is that flood aid going? Flood no, aid? I mean, you know, Pakistan. So, but exactly. Less, yeah. So, so hence, it's yeah. not much. It's not less than a hundred. So I think the real thing is, look, I think we have to shake off our Pakistan obsession in a way because our economy today at $3.5 trillion is 10 times bigger than Pakistan's at $350 billion. So I think Pakistan is in real bad shape. Right now, they have only $5 billion of reserves. Uh, less than a month's imports. Pakistan's economy has never been in such a bad shape as it is. While they'll continue to be a nuisance, you know, continuing to do cross-border terrorism, etc. I think Pakistan, where it was in the 1950s, as a critical ally for the West, as a leader of the Islamic world, as a potential major country in the developing world, to one way, I think they're going around with a, you know, asking everybody for money. And that's not a, a pleasant thing to situation to be in. And uh, they found that uh, China could not reverse India's occupation, sorry, India's uh, ab abrogation of the Article 370. They tried to push it in the UN Security Council. Uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, MB MBZ in, uh, MBZ in UAE and MBS in uh, Saudi Arabia, the best friends of Mr. Modi. Hmm. Uh, so this idea that the two Islamic countries will back Pakistan, that has proven uh, wrong. So barring China and Turkey, there is very little international support for Pakistan. Mm. But we must also not expect that Pakistan had 200 million people with nuclear weapons, one of the large armies, that nobody should do anything with Pakistan. You know, we're not going to be in that situation ever. You know, Russian friends were trying. After all, they enticed Imran Khan to show up yeah. the day before they invaded Ukraine. So I think Pakistan's location gives it some importance. Which is the only reason it yeah. gets importance. Yeah. It's... No, I, I broadly agree. I mean, I, I put, you know, in uh, Pakistan's GDP today is less than Maharashtra's hmm. and one Indian state. It's less than Bangladesh. But and, Dhruva, you know, you take your eyes off Pakistan hmm. and you pay the price for it. I've always seen that. Anybody who has ever written... Do you remember the two times that America took its eyes off Afghanistan? Mm -hmm. Thinking it's a small country, like, you know, wag the tail kind of a situation. But it does happen. No, no, you I, I, can't the, take your eyes off some countries. No, no. There are certain ways, I think, where Pakistan is, and we found this recently, where they have... I mean, there's some counter-terrorism cooperation that they have now reopened the line to, it seems, um, with the US. So it's, you know, we went from a zeroing out of US-Pakistan engagement after August 2021 to something. It, it's unlikely now to go back to where it was before, but there is some counterterrorism cooperation happening. There is the uh, the aid uh, relief. There's another factor as well, which is a domestic political factor in Pakistan, which is, I think Imran Khan had gone so far in his anti-Americanism that the US sees an opportunity uh, in engaging some of the other actors, particularly as the current government, let's see how long it lasts. So I think that that some of these factors have uh, are at play. Uh, they see an opportunity. I think you wrote about this as well, where you know potentially it's not as if the Pakistan-China relationship is now qualitatively different. It's much deeper, has an economic dimension to it that wasn't there in the past. It was previously a military, primarily a military, military uh, relationship. But now I think the U.S. sees a little bit of an opportunity to kind of... Uh, I think the source of threat to us comes from Pakistan's relationship with China. Hmm. A Pakistan that becomes subservient to China. That After all, the U.S. did not give nuclear weapons to Pakistan. It was China that gave nuclear weapons. Okay, Americans kept turned the other, looked the other way in the, in the 80s and the 70s. But I think, I'm not saying take your eyes off Pakistan. Pakistan poses a real and existing threat to us, even in its weakest moments it can continue to do damage to our interests. But I think we as we need to manage that. I mean, that situation is not going to change. 
uh, or is going to change because us is doing something with pakistan or russia and china are going to be befriending uh, pakistan but i think that problem will be there because pakistan's elite uh, is so deeply hostile to india but i think what i'm saying is the current situation the pakistani elite has never been as badly divided internally and as badly off economically and as clueless about how to change its economy into a more positive direction so those are conditions but we must never take our rice of pakistan because it's right next to you there's right. no way you can take your rice See, off pa- uh, america had leverage over decision making in pakistan to a certain extent but now with pakistan and china getting close and pakistan literally becoming a vassal state of china uh, america's leverage becomes lesser yeah. that makes it more dangerous for us doesn't it it does in fact th- that's one reason at least some people would argue like it's good for us if the us continues to engage pakistan to a limited level because as you know our friends in pakistan how much they do business with china their real heart is in london and yeah. washington and dubai and well, not just their heart but yeah, yeah. Uh, other assets yeah, yeah other yeah. assets including yeah. prime ministers <laughs> yeah absolutely so i think they are so eager to elite level maintaining the relationship with the us so i think us has some leverage but i think for us one we have to devise a strategy hmm. that at this point how do we see the longer term how do we change pakistan look that's that question for us can we make it a more reasonable country what can we do to reduce the threat from inside pakistan and are there other ways in which we can support some of the forces sometimes or we engage all sections of the society these are different questions for example uh, you know the current government modi government negotiated a ceasefire agreement with general bajwa uh in tw- february 2021 we thought things will improve further then imran khan undermined it uh so so i think the but i think the effort to keep keep them engaged in some form while being tough i think that is the new policy that the modi government has done which is don't be defensive on terrorism if you attack me i'm going to hit you back which we saw in uri then in uh, balakot second kashmir is not for negotiation because i think the previous 30 uh, previous 30 years from say 89 90 to 2014 we seem to put kashmir was open ended question hmm. open to negotiation but by doing what they did on article 370 they saying look there's nothing to negotiate here hmm. there is a new situation therefore you have to come to terms with it so i think what india has done in the last few years under the modi government is to change the terms of engagement that is Uh, we're not going to be defensive on terrorism we're going to push back uh, we're going to uh, do what we have to in kashmir so i think if we want to normalize relations on the basis of trade uh, stop terrorism we are open to it so i think our policies have changed i think today they're far more effective but i don't think there's any illusion hmm. uh, that we're going to be friends with them in the near term but but we must keep up the strategy hmm. uh, to limit the danger from pakistan so this new situation on the ground on kashmir and the new narrative as far as uh, kashmir and indian foreign policy is concerned uh, what is the sense among the think tanks in uh, washington dc do they accept it uh, is it grudging appreciation where are we where are they i don't think they care or have much of a you know it's funny it's just dropped off the agenda you know, a number of things have happened can you imagine <laughs> that right you and i have been yeah. seeing this since the 90s that it to see a younger person uh who's saying that it's dropped yeah. off the agenda no, but you know when you know when i moved to washington first time 2005 to 7 my first those people the, the handful of people who cared about south asia there in in washington think tanks cared about just three things 
which was basically India-Pakistan relations. And as they started managing, particularly escalation, uh, there were a lot of fears about that, particularly the nuclear dimension. Two was Kashmir. And three related to that was non-proliferation. And, and that was really it. You know, that was all they cared about. Mm. Nothing about the economy, nothing about... Um, today, I mean, there, there are still you know, a few people working on that, but that's such a marginal issue. But, you know, I think a few things have happened since uh, 2019, August 2019, which is, you know, uh, COVID, other other things have taken, yes. you know... Have, so, so now that's water under the bridge. And uh, You remember, I mean... Every time a Pakistani foreign secretary visited India, I mean, it was such a, you know, entire media crowd. Yeah. Was so obsessed with India-Pakistan, what is happening? Did they talk? Did they smile? Mm. You remember chasing them in the <laughs> UN corridors? Did they meet? Yeah. I mean, we would go for non-aligned summits. And the only issue the Indian media was interested in was whether Indian and the Pakistani prime ministers would meet mm. rather than actually substance of the conference. Yeah. So I think we were the the kind of focus and centrality of Pakistan and Kashmir in our diplomacy mm. has now completely gone. Six years, we have not talked to them and nobody is even But now everybody, sleep. have you noticed, everybody talks about did Modi get up and look at she or mm. did she yeah. look at exactly. Modi first? Exactly. That the, you know, that two to tango, yeah. <laughs> everybody is looking at she and Modi, I think that not is, uh, she yeah. and um, uh, whether it is Shabazz or whether it's going to be Bilawal and Jaishankar. It's nobody's it's looking at that anymore. It's going to be just she and Modi. I think that's what I think the China question today is the principal question for India. Mm. And what remains of the Pakistan question mm. is a subset of the China question. So I think the, the kind of challenges we face from China on our frontier, for our economy, uh, for our security, for our larger position in the region and in the international system, China has become the principal problem. So for therefore the attention rightly, is focused on China. Well, Pakistan has really become, has dropped off our our radar as well, as much as it has dropped off uh, the American radar. I think at the core of it is the relative decline of Pakistan. Hmm. I mean, the kind of attention they used to get. Uh, so tell me, uh, how, is, uh, how did America react to this whole thing of Imran Khan saying that my government has been destabilized and they, they brought it down and things like that? America brought it down. You know, a poor, I, I think he targeted Don Lu, I think, who yeah. was the assistant secretary, who I think was a bit uh, surprised at uh, being uh, singled out like that. Um, you know, you know, it's funny. It just it doesn't get as much attention in the media generally. Uh, Imran Khan, you know, he did an interview even a few weeks ago. So there's still pockets of the media that still give him some airspace. Mm. But uh, by and large, I think you know, it's it was it, it it did him it discredited him further if that was required. That you know, somebody who was basically uh, espousing conspiracy theories and and uh, like this. So um, uh, generally, I don't think it, it won him any points. But uh, mostly, again, people don't care. It's and not, in the twenty twenties, would America you know, try to you know I, I push would, off a dictator, push off a government at this stage? No, like, no, no. I, again, I, I, the the level of um, I, I'm not sure what the, no, no, so they don't. They, they really don't care. They're fed up. They're, I think that's the best. They're fed up about you know, uh, particularly if you people who are at the working level in the in the national security community who dealt with Pakistan for 15 years, who often knew they were playing a double game. That working level, and some of those people are now in more senior positions. Mm. They're just fed up. They don't. They don't. They don't want. I would go with that headline. Uh, no, yep. fed up no, with fed Pakistan. Pakistan. <laughs> no, I mean, again, that's not to. I don't want to uh, completely dismiss. Again, sure. I mentioned a few examples of how Pakistan is continuing to make itself useful in certain ways. You know, one thing they've done recently mm. is um, providing some ammunition to Ukraine. Uh, so they they have they find ways to make themselves useful. But the general mood, uh, you know, particularly at the working level, is we're fed up with these people. I'm going to come again to the Ukraine mm. situation. Uh, Rajat, like, um, 
everybody, uh, you know, at every meeting of think tanks that uh, I've attended or, uh, you know, spoken, everybody wants the same thing. End the war, end the war, end the war. Do, do countries see India as somebody who can, like, at least talk to Russia to end the war? Is Can India play a role? I mean, we never liked it when somebody said mm. that, you know, can we mediate between India and Pakistan? So I, I can well understand, you know, when if India was to make the offer uh, to mediate, it would be rebuffed. But can India ever play a role? I mean, is... No. No. Mm-hmm. And okay. I think our minister has uh, also made it very clear, Foreign Minister Jayashankar. You know, look, I think don't arrogate yourself. Look, we want peace. We want talks. I don't think there's any illusion in Delhi that somehow we are the brokers of peace. Hmm. There's only one country that can make peace, which is the United States, which today, if it pulls the plug on arms supplies to Ukraine, Ukraine's ability to fight will go down. And the Russians will only negotiate with the Americans. They're not going to negotiate with the Ukrainians. They're not going to negotiate with the Europeans. They think they're too too small. Hmm. So I think it's really, uh, it's really only the U.S. can do it. And at this time, uh, I think they're committed to supporting Ukraine and Ukraine's attempt to regain its uh, you know, uh, territory from Russia. But where this ends, we don't know. There are voices in the US which mm-hmm. are calling for a dialogue, which are calling for a settlement. But again, the problem is that, look, it's very easy. Many Indians might tell Ukraine, why don't you just give Eastern Ukraine to Russia and then they'll be happily live ever after. Indians would love saying that, yeah, but, but would, would not do that. Would you territory. do that on Kashmir? No. Just or give Arunachal Pradesh to uh, the Chinese? Yeah, exactly. No, in, nobody wants to give an inch of their territory, and very few realize that. I think when it comes to other countries. Mm, yeah. So, so I think it is. It is. We are not. We are not. You know, in the in the business. I think we are not. We don't have the strength. We are not the principal mover and shaker mm. in Europe. But we have to adapt to that situation, which is what we are doing. But I think the U.S. debate is worth watching, because in Europe is divided. You have the Central Europeans who have a border with Russia. They're totally opposed to any settlement with Russia that does not give long-term guarantees. What is the guarantee? Russia won't do what it has done to Ukraine tomorrow to Poland, tomorrow to Moldova. So for them, this is not just about you know Ukraine, but this is about the nature of Russian power. Their worries about Russia's historic imperial tradition so they worry about it. But if you're sitting in France or, or sitting in Germany, they say, yeah, okay, let's find some solution. Uh, but Ukrainians are not ready to accept it. So I think that leaves the Americans as the most important interlocutor. And my sense is, maybe Dhruva can tell us more in terms of where the debate in Washington is. At this point, uh, there seems to be continuing support. But I think only they can hmm. produce the terms of a settlement. And that's the reason why hmm. Zelensky went to Washington to to engage with them, Russians are in, um, Americans are in touch with uh, with with Russians. Uh, the CIA chief Bill Burns seems to be in conversation with them regularly. Mm. There are phone calls between the U.S. Defense Secretary and the the Russian defense officials. So U.S. is is the one which is actually uh, on yeah. top of the situation. We're mm. almost at uh, one year mm. since yeah. the Probably war, right? Uh, so is there uh, is there an understanding that this can only be resolved on the table? So, you know, three three points on this. One is, I think the fighting will continue this year at the very least. Um, uh, the winter is coming to an end. Uh, both the Ukrainians and the Russians think that time is on their side. The Ukrainians are getting a new influx of weapons. Um, and things that the Americans and Europeans previously said were off the table are now slowly they're putting on the table. So their, their confidence is building up. 
they had a, a shift in momentum late in the you know, last few months of last year. So the Ukrainians think they have the upper hand. The Russians are meanwhile preparing for another spring offensive. They've mobilized 150,000 troops. They have changed their commanding uh, command structures. So they think that they they can make some inroads. So as long as both sides think that time is on their side and that continued fighting will be in their favor, the war will continue. They're not in the mood to negotiate. Um, so that I think is, you know, we should be sort of uh, realistic about that. On the Indian role, I think realizing this, there are ways, no grand negotiations, and I don't think you want to, to, to go there for all the reasons Dr. Rajamohan said, but there are ways where India can make sort of uh, tactical uh, interventions. And there have been a few cases of this. So, for example, a statement at the G20 summit, um, which was uh, working with the Russians particularly to uh, get them to agree to a statement, um, working on the grain, Black Sea grain deal, uh, which Turkey and the UN primarily brokered, but India played a small role in, in getting the Russians to live up there in the bargain on the denuclearization of, um, or not targeting nuclear reactors. Um, so uh, potentially POW exchanges in the future. So, you know, the, if both sides are, you know, looking for an honest broker, a third party, India is one of many countries that they could turn to potentially if they wanted to. So I think that those are some of the things where India can play a, a tactical instrumental role, but I think we have to be realistic about it. Finally, on the U.S., um, you know, um, broadly the U.S. national security community, from their point of view, this war is going splendidly, <laughs> which oh. is that they they have no their troops are not on the front lines. They're they you know there are no American troops on the line. They've spent quite a lot of money, uh, but it amounts to about six percent of their annual defense budget. So it's a small you know uh, from their point of view it's a modest increase, but it's something that they see as degrading Russian um, forces quite substantially. Uh, so from their point of view, this is a good uh, this is looking quite good for them. Uh, now there is a there is now though uh, a bit of Ukraine fatigue, particularly on the far left and the far right of uh, in Congress in the U.S. Congress, and so every time the U.S. extends another package, it is becoming slightly harder to negotiate for them to say here's another thirty billion dollars, forty billion dollars uh, that they have to come to, and particularly now with the Republicans taking control of the House the, of Representatives, the lower chamber, uh, there is a faction of about twenty. Uh, right-wing uh, Republicans who are generally opposed to continuing this assistance to the Ukraine. Fox News. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> so I think that that mood is that doesn't mean that it'll come to an end, but it's going to become increasingly hard to sustain this hmm. over the long run. And like you can't just do a blank check to Ukraine. Uh, nobody wants a blank check, but certainly the checks may start becoming smaller. And um, you're going to go into a pre-election year. I mean, mm. you're already in the pre-election mm. year. Mm. How much longer can they stomach this? you know expenditure and interest the interest i think is you know that's fine again because you yeah no. but but that's less of an issue again because they're not us troops fighting there i think the expenditure will become more of a question hmm. uh, which is you know why are we spending 40 billion or whatever 100 billion dollars it'll be perhaps by the end of the year uh, when we can be spending that on infrastructure at home, on jobs, or you know, on, on other things, but or on the border immigration, I will add to what the US has gained. For example, I mean, their oil companies are raking it in. Mm. Yeah, and even to the even President Biden has warned them, but their private companies and they're really making making it big. US technology companies are in a big way involved in the war. Uh, for example, Starlink, Elon Musk's satellite system, you know, has mm. been very important for the Ukrainians. You have this new software called you know, Palantir Software, American software, AI, artificial intelligence being used mm. 
to give you know better information to the ukrainian soldiers to target the russian forces so i think that is a second third i think nato has expanded hmm. if you remember just 2 years ago uh, president macron was saying nato was brain dead but today sweden and finland which were historically neutral countries have joined nato uh, this war has helped america to put pressure on germany See, Germany had it great. You know, the Americans were defending them. They could do business with Russia and China, but now they're telling the Germans, "You can't play both sides." Hmm. Uh, so I think German they they managed to put a lot of pressure on Germany. So I think it's multiple gains for the United States. Hmm. Uh, and I think this is where I would say Putin has been what he thought was brilliant. A quick step. war. Yeah, actually has helped the Americans. There is nothing to, called yeah, a quick war. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's, and yeah exactly yeah. but it has helped the americans and i think what he has done is with all his obsession with nato expansion and the determination to push america out of europe is actually helped america to consolidate yeah. reconsolidate itself interesting the nato's dead bit mm. one had forgotten that you know this is what was the the narrative a few yeah. years ago yeah. when the nato's dead and in fact some people had thought that quad is the new nato mm. both those busted now Yeah I mean NATO is an artifice you know NATO came about again under specific circumstances during the cold war hmm. um I don't think if you had to rebuild it from scratch today NATO would not exist uh but yet again now it has found a new purpose uh, in some ways uh, again a few years ago I mean I remember t- talking to NATO commanders and they were saying you know what is our purpose uh, should we you know they were involved in Afghanistan they were doing maritime uh, counter piracy operations in the western indian ocean and now again they 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 found a purpose again they've expanded um but i think there are questions now about burden sharing right so are all the nato countries and this is where the pressure on germany will come in are all are all, is everybody uh, uh sort of contributing as much as they could and you know the general feeling is the uk france uh, to some degree and then the central and eastern europeans are but others the G- germany the southern europeans uh, are not doing enough and mm. so i think we will see that that debate emerge and not just on the military side although that there is that element but particularly when it comes to financial assistance to ukraine the americans are going to say look we are we are the ones spending all the money you germany you you should be doing more mm. so again it's not i i think nato itself will still continue to have these internal divisions um uh, in particular countries like hungary and others that have stronger ties to russia don't want to see uh, russia pushed as, as much into corner will complicate uh, this um but i think you know the the quad is nato i think was always a chimera it was never meant to be uh nato i think the comparison is false um it's not a collective defense treaty based organization it's there's no expectation in india that we'll have japanese troops sort of fighting india's wars on india's behalf uh so i think that that, that was sometimes I feel like with the quad and and perhaps we can pivot to that but the sometimes a lot of the expectations uh, or assessments put on the quad are done by the people who are most skeptical of it it's always raising the bar uh, to make a uh, to make it impossible for uh, the countries to meet and then yeah. thereby say it is useless and, and uh, so all these uh, uh, you know forums which open up these multilateral forums that open up uh, there are the skeptics who think that oh okay this is just a talk shop and then there are the 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 conspiracy theorists who believe that everything is is something which is going to be a military uh, yeah. you know uh, organization of like nato uh, do you do you think that too yeah i think you know we tend to either exaggerate or dismiss you know and there's one thing which never happened with nam yeah 
<laughs> which is the least most dysfunctional institution and yeah. in that it never take the the whole enthusiasm for nam yeah for example in 62 when the war took place very few mm. non aligned nobody in the nam support in fact they were putting pressure on india to accept a ceasefire mm. they kind of said we'll mediate between you and china so i think the 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 illusion of nam Mm. and the we are leader of the global south i mean there is a this a long tradition mm. going back to the anti colonial movement and um, the sense that somehow we can build a new world in partnership with each other in the developing world or in asia or in the third world uh, all these institutions those who focused on the third world nam didn't do much mm. oic which thought religion is the basis on which mm. you can construct a new world yeah. that has failed pan arabism has failed pan asianism has failed so i think so what the, it work bilateralism only yeah i think finally it is politics of balance of power you know that, that yeah. in the gulf today the conflict is between saudi arabia and iran it is nothing to do with religion yeah uh, so i think it's really the interests uh, i think when we think about international relations at the end of it it's really about interests hmm. it's so about let's uh, while coming towards the end of this discussion let's talk about g20 since we are talking about multilateralism bilateralism hmm. converging interests diverging interests so with india uh, hosting the g20 and how do you see the india us relationship in that prism then no i i think uh, what india is doing with g20 this time i, mean, I think uh, we saw the sorry the both the g20 and the global south summit we hmm. had uh, in delhi last few days yeah. uh, there was very little anti western rhetoric yeah uh, so i don't think india sees this as going back to the 70s of reinventing a third world again anti american hmm. you know consolidation second i think that today the focus has been on how does india make its g20 leadership work second how do we consult the developing countries in order to make our you know chairmanship more successful hmm. third i think we've tended to neglect the developing countries from putting them at the center to in the cold in the post cold war years we had to focus on the big power relationships us china russia we focused on a neighborhood we focused on regional institutions we joined asean we joined a whole lot of region we built new regional institutions like the indian ocean rim association but i think we tended to neglect the name i mean if you ask anyone where was everybody it? yeah but today i think we now see we have good equities there and mobilize some of those equities not as an anti american instrument but as the one where india can exercise some leadership and india can be a bridge between the developed north and the underdeveloped south i think that is a more a positive construction mm. rather than the negative construction of the 1970s so i think we we are approaching this very pragmatically very very practically and my sense is some americans at least uh, see that is better to have india lead the developing countries rather than a china or an iran or somebody else so i think they see it as a, an india that has strong presence in the developing world would also be uh, valuable for them and then there is a this is not something said by any of our officials hmm. there is an element of competition with china that look china has grown at our expense in the nam in the last 30 years so you want to bring back uh, some of that influence back to ourselves Hmm. Uh, Dhruva, you're in DC, so tell me. Uh, uh, America goes into election uh, simultaneously as India, and I think it's after what two decades or something like that that's happening, where both countries mm, are going yes, into right. uh, elections at the same time. So uh, what we have seen is that one year prior to America going into elections, India ceases to matter. 
it's always been the case whereas for india even if india goes into elections america will always be uh, central to our foreign policy to our uh, our interactions with other countries that relationship continues whether the state department officials change or not how is this going to what do you see going to happen I, so it's hard to know but i think i'd say one exception to the rule has been the last two years which is you know if you look at uh, every prior president after presidency since the end of the cold war um they've really only focused on india in the second term and usually often towards the end of the second term so clinton it was really the last two years 98 after the nuclear tests george w bush it was the second term 2005 that he offered the civil he nuclear agreement with the war in the first was, yeah term. yeah um uh, so it, it largely it was the first you know even obama you know he he did come in his first term but um uh, it, it it was really more on the second term that that there was movement in the relationship what's been unusual with biden is actually the first to how intense the engagement has been in the first two years with india uh so it's not simply a sort of foreign policy I mean, it could be because biden is going to maybe a one term president but uh it has been quite unusual that to 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 sort of engage with india off the bat you had the elevation of the quad you've had uh, you know a success succession of uh uh new institutions that involve india uh in in the first two years so i don't see you know uh, again there will be the political distractions at home but biden has a strong ended up with a stronger mandate in congress than or less mm-hmm. negative mandate than than many expected so i don't think that uh, unless you know, there may be some personal changes they, which is very natural but i don't think it'll be india specific uh if it uh, if at all i don't anticipate a major change before the election at least for that reason but just getting back to i think uh, this issue you know i i think there are a lot of interlocking pieces in india's orientation the g20 is part of it the global south is part of it but it's actually many other pieces that are all now interlocking together and they're motivated by china china and china mm. <laughs> um and you know if you look today on any aspect of foreign policy today it is amazing how much it is uh, not defined by but certainly influenced by china and in some ways that's natural right you have a global power in china that has grown on india's doorstep uh the, at a time when india has been rising rapidly and so it's only natural in some ways that it should come to influence but i mean just just to run through a few things you know you have the quad with the us japan australia i2 u2 uh to to india's west the g20 um which you know sort of a venue as is india sees it of all the major economies coming together um the global new, new renewed engagement with the global south uh sort of uh, you know one thing we talk about pakistan but sort of a renewed focus on the neighborhood which where pakistan does not have a veto as it did in sark mm. over over regional engagement so you now have a you know connectivity we're talking about a lot of pos- a positive agenda for the neighborhood that does not is not held hostage to pakistan um but just even also on on soft thematic issues maritime security today uh trade you know india the, the fact that india withdrew from rcep but is engaging in now trade negotiations with australia uae which have concluded but now with the eu uk canada um you know the the sort of reorientation of india's trade engagement uh digital um you know number of new initiatives in that front so you you aid policy uh, you know india's foreign assistance if you look at every one of these baskets now it's very much influenced by by china and and you know the outreach to the us i think falls in that broader category and should be seen in that light uh raja what do you think sark giving up on uh, india or india giving up on sark well, i think uh, if you remember prime minister narendra modi when he first sark summit event in 2014 i mean i think they were hoping you know the i'd even forgotten about sark it's only when <laughs> dhruva mentioned sark <laughs> i said okay let me ask you 
See, remember that we had that the ministers had actually agreed on a you know more connectivity through road and rail networks, but in the last minute, the Pakistan army pulled the plug. Nawaz Sharif could not yeah. sign the agreement. So after that, Mr. Modi said very clearly, "Look, if Pakistan wants to come with us, we'll go with Pakistan. If they don't want to come, we will go without Pakistan." Hmm. Which you know, Indian Prime Minister said that before. Hmm. So today, if they don't want to come, you go with who you can. So we're not no longer letting Pakistan stop, uh, you know, by blocking Sark. If it thinks it'll stop us from doing trade with our neighbors, they're mistaken. And what we've seen happen is, look, the trade with Bangladesh has dramatically grown. Yeah. Uh, the you know the waterways have opened up. The old road networks have opened up. The new railway lines being restored. The old connections that pre-partition links. So I think we are doing well without Sark. With or without you. So I think yeah. <laughs> so problem is for Pakistan. Look. Does it want to trade with us at this point? They say very clearly, look, we don't want anything to do with India. They would rather go with China rather than go with India, but that is their choice. But I don't think India is any more worried about. What it. about the Belt Road Initiative? One heard a lot about it till about two years ago, uh, pre-COVID, and after COVID, it's kind of you know the whole string of pearls. um belt road there seems to be uh, has the, china lost i mean I has think, yeah. the stomach gone for this i think so i mean i think at least on the belt and road thing i mean i think it looked like it was the greatest thing ever hmm. uh, to actually it has done badly in many places hmm. and two in our own neighborhood hmm. two countries which most enthusiastically embraced belt the cpec yeah the cpec was pakistan and sri lanka sri lanka which was so enthusiastic about chinese projects that both of them are today stuck with unsustainable they got their just desserts Yeah. yeah so i think and globally Unfortunately, globally, but they got it. Yeah, globally in many places in africa and latin america there is a disappointment with the kind of outcomes from the belt and road initiative and within china itself i think they're beginning to question is it wise to throw money around hmm. like this because after all chinese economy is slowing down and they don't have as much money to dispense as they and had and they lost man and material yeah exactly in pakistan when they were, but even europe was very keen on this and they were very pro uh, mm-hmm. uh these activities of the belt and road why why was europe so keen i think they saw there was a need for infrastructure um they sometimes for good reasons some of the institutional lenders um and the, the traditional lenders uh, had very high standards for what was required and that sometimes meant that they didn't finance projects that uh, some of these countries wanted uh, so sometimes the leaderships of these countries wanted and so they saw in china a very easy alternative and uh, sometimes the, and I, unfortunately i think there still is this ability at i think it's not over yet where certain leaderships will say look we know it it will come with hidden strings attached but that's for an, a future leader to deal with so we'll we'll take we'll take the the burden hand rather than uh, the promise the empty promise or the high onerous requirements of the world bank or or another lender so i think that that is that that is still a game um we have seen dwind- a dwindling of bri related uh, outward financing uh, some of it related to china's zero covid policy um but if you look at where it has been most successful it was actually in in russia in fact in th- energy investments very major energy investments in russia uh, pa- even pakistan hasn't gone so well but there the thermal power projects again uh did come up quite quickly the problem there was pakistan didn't do electricity reform and wasn't yeah. able to actually transfer some of the cost to consumers and, and that actually saddled them with f- further debt but the highway railway projects have often become stuck because of local issues so i again i don't think it's going to go away completely i think there'll be there'll still be attempts by china to uh, invest in strategically important port um those are military, military which right. have a potential dual use uh, facility that will continue 
but uh, I, again, it's not. I think we'd, we'll see a much more restrained uh, focus, uh, less of a focus on hard infrastructure, more on the digital. Uh, they are trying to offer now space. Uh, you know, in new domains, uh, they will try and offer this alternative. But again, I, I'm a bit worried about. Uh, I still feel like in many developing countries, there is still. Um, uh, the sort of easy, particularly those that are farther away, that don't have this to have to bear the strategic consequences, they they still in, uh, they still look at China as a potential alternative. There's been an elite capture. I mean, I think in many developing countries, they've cultivated the elites, hmm. and uh, you know how the kind of particular methodology which they apply. Because those guys have the control yeah, of the narrative yeah, also, yeah, then, yeah. and that you pass on the cost to the people. That's what Sri Lanka, which is what the hmm. Rajapaksha's did. Hmm. and the previous opposition government as well. They said, look, okay, you accept inflated costs and presuming that it will all work itself out. But today they settled with the debt and I think uh, that resistance to uh, this kind of, uh, you know, just giving the Chinese anything they want hmm. looks good in the near term. Hmm. But the longer term costs are beginning to become manifest. And like as Sri Lanka has found, now China is not willing to work with India, Japan and the other debtors to restructure the debt. They say, take more money and give me more assets. Yeah. So I think that policy, uh, I think even Sri Lankans are, are resenting it, but they're stuck with uh, with China. And I think Commitments the, that they've yeah, made yeah, in the yeah, past, yeah. yes. Uh, so finally, Raja, uh, this year is going to have, there's going to be a host of events which are going to take place because of G20. What are the challenges that you see? Is it just going to be one event from the other or is India going to benefit uh, from hosting all these events? Um uh, because the opposition is turning around and saying that it's a So is it a tamasha, talk shop? What, is the, what are the near-term and long-term benefits of hosting the G20? Look, I think some of them are going to be useful, some of them are not. I mean, I think, mm-hmm. uh, for example, uh, uh, you know, the, for example, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think our differences with China are so deep on the region. So we will try and limit those differences, but use it for diplomatic engagement with the Central Asian states. The G20, everybody is going to be here. So in some senses, you're really beginning to engage with the global governance in a, mm. in a, in a fundamental way. But I think on the question of using G20 for domestic political purposes, mm. I think one of the things Mr. Modi has done from the beginning was, look, you must take foreign policy to the masses. Yeah. You remember the the insistence on hosting, you know, we saw Xi Jinping in, being hosted in Gujarat. Gujarat. In Mahabalipuram. Mahabalipuram. So I think from the beginning, unlike the traditional leaders in India, Delhi, hmm. he saw, look, the value of taking foreign policy to beyond Delhi. Yeah, 50 cities or something. Yeah, this one, of course, yeah. yeah. But, but even before this. Indonesia, I believe, tried uh, doing it in several cities, 23 hmm. cities or 33 cities or something like that, the G20, when they had it. But they couldn't manage, maybe because of COVID or whatever. But uh, we are going to be taking it in, you know, 50 yeah, I think, cities. Uh, so I think that's... You know, showcasing. Of, yeah, showcasing, I think, uh, foreign hmm. policy for domestic benefit. I mean... I mean, you can't blame political leaders for trying sure. to take advantage. Absolutely. But I think the but this was not meant only for G20. As I said, from mm. 2014, I mean, you remember the Goa, we had the BRICS summit. Yeah, uh, we had this whole things being distributed around the country so that uh, you get a wider popular participation. To that extent, I think. Uh, Modi government has linked domestic politics and foreign policy. And diaspora, in, right? Yeah. Uh, the engagement with uh, with expat that. That used to be like when foreign ministers went or when uh, prime ministers went abroad. That was like this one side show which yeah. used to happen. Now they are like a major so, yeah. part of your engagement in any country that 
uh, we engage with, like when the prime minister travels or the foreign minister travels. You remember when we were growing up, it was said brain drain. Hmm. See, we used to, the, in the, if you go back to the until the until Vajpayee government, which was came in 1998, the general tendency was look, these guys abandoned Mother India. They have given up. You know, we paid for their education. Look at them; they're yeah. going out. They're going outside. To one where now you owning them and saying, look, they're they're assets to India. They're not a brain drain, but they're a brain gain. I even remember uh, a time where uh, if you were a doctor and you had super specialization, you had to get special permits. Mm-hmm. to leave the country you could not they would not give you a visa to leave the i'm mean, not visa they you couldn't yeah, leave the country you needed permission uh, if you had a certain specialization so i think that's a big change i think what vajpay yeah. uh, government mm. started the you know ramadu pravasi bharat uh, begin all that started under vajpay so they flipped nehru's policy nehru said look wherever you are you are citizens of that country we might have cultural contacts but nothing more mm. uh, to bjp which started saying no the children of mother india belong to mother india yeah. we going to engage them far more intensively and i think mr modi has taken it to a very very higher level by making it integral to uh, india's uh, foreign policy so when you interact throughout with uh, indians in america is there a more uh, more uh, vibrant interaction that or uh, more uh, what should i say more deeper interaction that they seek with indian with india i think there's a at least with the us there's mm. a generational divide mm. so those who are first generation I uh, still have contacts in India they often studied here they grew up here often you know speak the language they still have friends family back here hmm. uh, back in India so you know for them it is a much more emotional connection many hmm. of them want to do more for the US India relationship they are very engaged sometimes they don't know what they they ask you know what what can we do what should we do um but they're also very divided in the situation of the diaspora and again in the US particularly they're divided by geography they're divided by uh language um and they're often divided also by profession so you have you know the IT people the medical the doctors the hoteliers so sometimes they're not as unified as as one might imagine the other challenge i think is the newer generations those who are born in the US Who the ABCDs. ABC, uh, the, the, <laughs> they don't the like being told that, yeah. don't you? Yeah. But but I, I think I mean again with some exceptions, this is not true mm. across the board. But the general trend I think is they don't have the same kind of emotional attachment to India. Okay. Many times they've grown up. Uh, I think it's become easier now, but many of them wanted to uh, uh, adopt all the trappings of Americanism. They wanted to actually distance themselves uh, culturally and emotionally from from India. Um, many of them have visited, of course, but they don't have the same kind of emotional attachment. And I think that that will be in future. They, I mean, this is a generation that's just coming of age, but dealing with second, third generation hmm. Indian Americans is going to be a very different type of challenge in how to get them, keep them engaged, and how to keep up their understanding of of India. There have been some efforts at trying to to do that, particularly private, uh, you know, uh, philanthropic in, initiatives to engage with the, them. But it, I think I sense that, that over over the next few decades will be a bit of a challenge but but just uh, get back quickly to the G20 thing i think you know in addition to the the show piece items i think there are some substantive aspects to it as mm-hmm. well and briefly you know that you know uh, this is an opportunity with india as the chair to highlight a few issues that otherwise do not get highlighted on the G20 or international forum so multilateral development uh, reform um, i think we'll see a lot more of that in the next few months um uh, sustainability and the green economy particularly from a de- de- developing world perspective Uh, will be another major thrust. 
digital public goods, um, like showcasing an India model for that, and again, particularly for the developing world. So I think that this is an opportunity to actually get some of these substantive issues on the agenda, a debt relief, sustainable debt relief. And again, that's targeted both at the West, which has its own uh, issues, and China as well. Which has. So uh, again, th this is an opportunity in that sense to put some of these on the centrally on the agenda. So I don't think it's just about the, the events mm. itself, but I think there is a very important subject. I would say, looking ahead, I, mean, I think the our problem with China now, we've gone through the third winter. Mm. It's happening now on the Himalayas, mm. where our troops are face-to-face -face with the Chinese at 17,000 feet. Now Chinese are expanding that to the eastern sector. So I think our China problem is, I think, going to get more acute. Mm. Which also means that uh, India needs to find a way to deter Chinese actions. There, I would say, India's case for India's stronger partnership with the US and Japan and Europe is only going to grow. Hmm. So I would say the real action is not in the multilateral. You know, you'll have the SEO, you'll have the G20, you have all this stuff. That's fine. But the real stuff is going to be how does India strengthen itself to cope with the Chinese challenge? Right. And the answer to the China problem, whether we like it or not, is in the US, hmm. is in Europe, is in Japan. Uh, and there... How quickly can we translate the broad agreements into concrete capability building within India? Can we build the weapons necessary quickly to deter China? Uh, those, I think that is going to be the biggest issue. And my sense is we're going to see a lot more action on India-US front and India-France front uh, to see how India's defense capabilities can be built to deal with the Great China Challenge. A lot of engagement or more engagement in the next year and two years just before the elections because that, you know, yeah. everything goes into a freeze mode. A yeah. couple of But I think there are major, major events time. before that, I would say. Yes. Yeah. Right. I love the, the issue, and this is both a challenge and an opportunity. A lot of things are happening in the private sector. Yeah. It's no longer the government's playing the role because sure. you know, the technology is owned by the private sector. The financing is in the hands of Wall Street or, you know, institutional investors. And so I think one of the challenges the governments are dealing with is, look, we now have the broad political agreements in place, but yeah. how can we actually incentivize, you know, uh, a, a private American company or European company to move its supply chains or part of its supply chains to India, right? So mm. you have to create these incentive structures. And that, I think, is where a lot of the Yeah, when the mechanisms at. get into place, then, mm. you know, things will move. Yeah. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank you for spending time here on the podcast and... Uh, explaining things which are a little confusing when it comes to foreign relations, especially India-US. Thank you for having us. Thank Wonderful you. talking to you, Smita. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks. Thank you very much for listening or watching this edition of ANI Podcast with Smita Prakash. Do like or subscribe on whichever channel you have seen this or heard this. Namaste. Jai Hind.